if you'll open your copy of the scripture to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. For those of you who may not know, we have been uh, working our way sequentially through the book of Matthew. And now we've come to the 12th chapter of this gospel. Matthew chapter 12. verses 1 through 8. That's where we find ourselves this morning. Let me set these uh, verses in your hearing before we begin the exposition of them. Uh, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields of the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? Now he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, The subject matter, as you know already, I'm sure, the Lord of the Sabbath. The biblical gospels are a powerful disclosure of Jesus' divine character. In all of the world's literature and in all the history of the world, there is nobody like him or ever will be like him. We see this in the fact that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. His audacious but utterly true claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath is one of the many revelations of his transcendent nature. This self-disclosure recorded in this gospel that I just read in your hearing was made in the midst of a Sabbath controversy. The Sabbath command, of course, was given by God. It is the fourth commandment listed in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 and verse 10 reads as follows. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And in it you shall not do any work. The verb in that verse, remember, is not simply a call to recall or a matter of exercising one's memory. Rather, the term is used in the sense of employing the Sabbath to show love and honor to God. When it says there, keeping it, literally means to sanctify setting it apart for sacred use. How it was to be kept generated conflict and controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees. In the Pharisees' legalistic system of works righteousness, they had imposed on the people of Israel burdensome rules regarding the seventh day or the Sabbath. It's not by accident that the verses I just read in your hearing are where they are. 
under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Matthew placed chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, right after chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He does this to show the connection and the contrast between the Pharisees' burdensome regulations and Jesus' offer of rest, salvation rest. You recall, as we looked last week, when Jesus called people to himself, those who are weary and heavy laden. He was talking to people who were suffering under the weight of these man-made legalistic rules that were not designed to do anything that God required, but were designed by men to seek the favor of God. The Pharisees' rules were derived, in fact, from the central text of rabbinic Judaism called the Talmud. The Talmud has 24 chapters, 24 chapters on Sabbath regulations. In their minds and the Pharisees' mind, the regulations were designed to gain God's favor. There were means whereby one could earn one's salvation. Since the fourth commandment, that is the uh, Sabbath, forbade work on the Sabbath, the Talmud defined what constituted work. Let me give you some samples. A man is out walking. He spits. Depends on what happens to the spit. If it goes into the dirt and makes a slight furrow, then it is plowing, which is work. On the Sabbath, scribes could not carry their pens, tailors their needles, or students their books. To do so might uh, tempt them to work. Now here's one that is somewhat foul. No bathing was allowed. Since water might spill onto the floor and accidentally wash it. A woman could not look at her reflection in a mirror. She might see some gray hair <laughs> and color it. <laughs> Now, I don't know anybody to do that. <laughs> that constituted work in their mind. That's the Talmud. This thing goes on. I told you 24 pages of this. That's not, that's, that's not all. A radish could not be left in salt because it would pickle, and pickling constituted work. An egg could not be left in the hot desert sand because it would be boiled. That is work. Remember, these things were not to be done. They were done to, be done, done to gain favor, to find favor. But not doing them. But God did not require any of it. It was a man-made rule. Man-made rules and patently absurd. 
Matthew chapter 12 is a pivot or turning point in Jesus' ministry to Israel because the nation represented by his religious leadership had rejected their Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And the Sabbath was one of the key reasons why they repudiated him. You can see it in Matthew 12, verse 14. Look what it says here. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Because Jesus didn't comport with, comply with their man-made regulations. In fact, he corrected them. They wanted to destroy him or kill him. In addition to that, Jesus had been exposing their hypocritical, external, and false religion. In our passage, the Lord, as I indicated a moment ago, corrected the Pharisees' bogus understanding of the Sabbath. The incident that precipitated the correction is presented in verse 1, and we'll call it the occasion. The occasion, there's a word sabbath there in verse one the english word sabbath and the greek word sabbaton transliterates the hebrew word shabbat shabbat or sabbath means ceasing rest or inactivity we see the concept in genesis chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 where it is stated that god rested from his work that is, his work of creation. On the seventh day, there was no creative activity by God. Now, to be clear, and I need to state this, lest somebody misinterpret and misunderstand, when it says that God rested, it does not mean that he was tired. Omnipotence needs no rest because regardless of the amount of power that goes forth from him, his power is not deleted one whit. His omnipotence is infinite. Have you not read? Have you not heard? Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. He doesn't lose any energy, any power. He ceased his creative activity. But, we see here in our text that the disciples picked heads of grain. That was the contentious point here. This was permitted by God. He gave authority to his people to do so in Deuteronomy chapter 23 through 25. They could walk along and they could pick grain to eat to satisfy their hunger. It was a divine provision to meet the physical need the occasion here comes the indictment verse 2 but when the pharisees saw this they said to him look your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the sabbath the law that had been broken was not god's law uh, but the pharisees rabbinic regulations that i've talked about the disciples were guilty only of breaking the false religious leaders rules not god's word there's a big difference there's a big difference between what God says and what men say. Moreover, does anyone really think that Jesus would permit his disciples to blatantly violate God's word? No, we know better than that. 
what must be recognized that is that false religious leaders always elevate their own man-made rules and traditions over scripture that's a telltale sign that they're not from the Lord because they put their truths, their words, their doctrine, their teaching above the teaching, the authority of God's word. The Pharisees were past masters at this. That is, they were experts at doing this. Jesus exposed them about this. Later on, and you can see it now in Matthew chapter 15, we see it in verses 3 and so may uh, also add here, Matthew chapter 15. Here, an example. What false religious leaders do. They impose man-made regulations. Things that God never intended, God never said. And they had confronted these Pharisees and scribes. They confronted Jesus before uh, one more time. In verse 3, he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. That's what they were saying. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your traditions. These false religious leaders didn't want to obey God. They didn't want to do the will of God, even with respect to their parents. And so they found a way out around it to undermine the validity of the authority of the word of God. You hypocrites, Jesus says. Rightly, I, let me stop there. Jesus called them what they were, hypocrites. Some of us might be tempted to say, well, guys, you know, this is a point of dispute and we just want to get along. He said, no, 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 you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Let me draw a couple of points out of this. Their devotion to God was apparent, not real. True devotion to God is expressed in submission to his word. It is bowing to his authority over our life. If I say I'm devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, then that means whatever he commands me to do, I will do that. I will not look for ways or loopholes to get out of doing what he's commanded me to do if I'm really devoted to him. Another thing. The Pharisees' elevation of their teaching over God's word is pernicious in that it, is, it usurped the Lord's authority. His authority over his people who command them to do what he wants, and they found a way to usurp his authority by replacing it with their own. Be mindful of that in your own life. Now it is of no little significance that the Pharisees were present to see an infraction of their tradition by the disciples. You see it there in verse 2 of Matthew 12. Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You know what this tells me? They were following Jesus around. What were they doing out there? Lurking around. 
They were out spying on him. And more than likely, they had gone farther than they were supposed to in terms of their own regulations and walking. You could only go a certain distance on the, on the Sabbath. And it makes you wonder, what are they doing there? They were looking for something to indict Jesus for. Jesus, in verse 3, answers. He answers them with scriptural illustrations. That's our next heading. Succeeding the indictment, now we have the scriptural illustrations. Verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? Now, when Jesus made this statement, Have you not read? He wasn't suggesting that they had not read the story about David and his companions recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Rather, our Lord was telling them by saying this that they had not grasped the significance of the story. They didn't really understand what had transpired in that story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Are you all familiar with that? Hmm. Hmm. It's a little murmur. See, if it, that was a tremor. If you really were familiar, it would have been an earthquake in terms of sound. Okay, let's go to 1 Samuel 21. Y'all need to start reading the Bible. <laughs> Committing it to memory. Amen. Oh, now you that's an earthquake. <laughs> yes, yes, I like that. Y'all are honest people. That's wonderful. Let me tell you the story. Let me set it up. David was the elected king. God had anointed him. He had replaced uh, Saul, who had rejected the word of God, and God rejected Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul didn't like the fact that David had been anointed by God. The Holy Spirit had come and empowered him to be the theocratic leader of the nation of Israel, and he knew he was being replaced he hated David. And w what he did, uh, he would try to kill David through a javelin. And David would play the harp, remember? To soothe uh, Saul because God was afflicting Saul with a demon, punishing him for his sin, his rejection of God's word. And in a fit of demonic influence and madness, he flung swords at David, a spear at David to kill him. David got away. In the occasion that we see here in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 21, he is fleeing from Saul. Verse, verse 1, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone? He said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me, that's Saul, with a matter, and he said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you, with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. And none of that was true. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. Underline that. 
And he implies, I'll give it to you, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy. Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. All right. I want you to go home and write a 10-page paper on this and come back next week. No, I'll explain it to you. The house of God is referred to as the tabernacle. The consecrated bread was freshly baked every Sabbath. There were 12 loaves of this freshly baked bread that was placed on the gold table in the holy place. The 12 freshly baked loaves of bread represent the 12 tribes of Israel. It was symbolic of communion and fellowship between God and his people. It was ceremonial. Only the priests were to eat this bread. It wasn't to be given to anybody else, just the priest. What they would do, they'd put the freshly baked bread on the gold table and take the bread that had been there previously and they would eat it. But in this case, it was given to David and his men who were hungry so that they might eat it. Now, we need to understand something here. We need to understand some distinctions in the Old Testament, the fact that there are three aspects of the Mosaic law, uh, three distinctions of parts in them so we can grasp this more fully. Let me tell you what they are, these, these um, aspects are parts. It's the moral law, it's the civil law, and there's a ceremonial aspect of the law. Now, let me just run through these quickly, help us understand it. The moral law, that, that referred to the eternal standard of righteousness that never changes. The moral law applies to everybody, everywhere, at all times. For example, it is never right to engage in idolatry. It's always wrong. It is never right to steal. It is always wrong. I don't care who you are or where you come from. It is never right to bear false witness. Lie. It's always wrong. Have I got a witness? You just said amen to that. Thank you. The moral law is inviolable. You do not break that, shouldn't break that. The civil aspect of the law is related to Israel as a nation under God. And the laws governing the nation respective, uh, with respect to waging war, for example. Restrictions on land use. You read through the Old Testament and you see those kind of civil things that related just to the nation and how it was to conduct itself under the authority of God and under the theocratic king. The one we're dealing with here is ceremonial law. Regulations for celebrating various religious festivals like Passover and Feast of Booths 
and worshiping God in the sanctuary, dietary regulations, the kosher law, remember? Leviticus chapter 18 and so on. And the whole sacrificial system is included. All of that ceremonial. Ceremonial law pointed forward to Christ. The ceremonial law is no longer in effect because Christ, for which the ceremonial law pointed to, has come. And since he's come, it's been fulfilled, so the ceremonial law does not apply to us. And that has particular relevance to the issue of the Sabbath. I want to give you a couple of texts. You need to go back to the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we'll see. There were some uh, false teachers that had infiltrated the church at Colossae. And they were promulgating (laughs) error to New Covenant people, New Covenant church. And Paul had to counter that with New Covenant truth and point out the reality that the ceremonial law in particular does not apply. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Let's start there. Are you there? Therefore, because of what Christ has done, previous verses, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or a what? Verse 17, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Those things in verse 16 that Paul regards, spoke about were just merely shadows. They weren't the real thing. They were pointers. What would you think if... <laughs> uh, this is an illustration. I hope it works. So it doesn't... Don't, don't look at me askance. What would you think if a man's wife had been on a trip and all he had was her picture? He could just look at it. But then she comes home and he just looks at the picture. You think, brother, something's wrong with you. (laughs) You got the real thing. What do you look at? An image. That's what the ceremonial is. It's just a picture, if you will, shadow. Jesus has come. You don't need the shadow now. You got the substance. <laughs> One other text, Hebrews chapter 10. We'll see it again. Hebrews 10, 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow, see the word there? of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. All right, let me just break this down briefly and we'll move on. The good things there refers to eternal redemption. It's talking about salvation. 
The word perfect there is a reference to salvation in Hebrews. The law, particularly uh, the ceremonial aspect I mentioned, the sacrificial system, it was just a shadow. The, the sacrificial system couldn't save. It was offered, those sacrifices, they were offered continually year by year, letting everybody know this can't save you. It's just a temporary thing. It's pointing to a sacrifice that's coming. It's a shadow. It is not the substance. It can't make you perfect. It can't save you. But when the substance comes, and we saw that in Colossians 2, Jesus Christ, he, he came and he saved. That's the issue. Ceremonial law. That's the point. Only the substance can save. The shadow's just pointed to it, just like your shadow. You go outdoors, and you're going to see your shadow because the sun is shining. Somebody can run into your shadow. They're not going to be bothered by it. But if they run into you, they'll say, excuse me. Because it just ran into substance. <laughs> now, what is Jesus saying here in Matthew 12? Two things I want you to get. God did not reprimand David. Neither did he reprimand Ahimelech the priest for the violation of the ceremonial law. Jesus tells us this. You know why? Because his point is this. Showing compassion in God's sight is always more important than strict adherence to ceremony and ritual. Compassion matters more. Those men were hungry. Ceremony only pointed to uh, something that was to come. You meet the immediate need of human beings. That's why Jesus says this. Now in verse 5, he gives a second illustration. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Wow. They worked on the Sabbath. The priest had to work on the Sabbath. In order to do their priestly function, in order to carry out what God had commanded, they had to actually work on the Sabbath. Let me give you a couple of texts. Numbers chapter 28, verses 9 and 10. Another is Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 8. Did y'all get those? Go home and read them. And apply them. And enlarge your understanding. These activities that I just talked about, gave you the scripture references for, violated rabbinical restrictions, but were permissible by God on the Sabbath. So we've seen the occasion for the rise of this controversy, the indictment from the enemies of Christ. Two scriptural illustrations that show that those men were justified 
the disciples and then the others, David and then the priest and what they did. The final heading is this, the sovereign ruler. Verse 6. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And the reason Jesus said something greater than the temple is here because he mentioned the temple in verse 5. The temple in the Old Testament symbolized the presence of God. But Jesus says here, but I say to you, that something greater than the temple is here. In other words, he is saying, you don't just have a symbol now, you have the reality. The greater is Christ, the embodiment of God in the Messiah. You have God incarnate. He's greater than the temple. He's not a symbol. He's the real deal. He is what the symbol pointed to. They did not perceive that reality. Jesus, of course, is greater than the symbol. The substance of reality is greater than the symbol or the shadow. They didn't get who they were talking to. Wow. He'll, he'll make it clear here shortly. But in verse 7 he says, but if you had known what this means, you know Jesus always telling these guys, y'all don't know the scripture. If you really knew the word of God, you wouldn't come up with these cockamamie ideas. They didn't know the meaning of the text. Hebrews chapter 6, 6 is where he's quoting from. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. If you'd known what that means, you religious leaders, you would not have condemned the innocent. That is, his disciples. What God desires is compassion. Get this, the Sabbath ceremonies do not trump compassion for people. God's people are to mimic him. They are to mimic Jesus. We're to be compassionate toward people and their need. That's what God wants. That's what he just lays out here. That's what Jesus just said. Don't get caught up in your religion to the exclusion of meeting people's needs. Because if you really want to be like God, be like Christ, you will be compassionate toward people and their needs. Don't get all worked up about your religion. Look at the character of God. So we're not done. And not a sacrifice. Now, now, Jews had this sacrificial system that God had laid down, but what Jesus is saying and in quoting this, what he's applying this to, the, the sacrificial system, mosaic system, had temporary importance. I've said it already, and I'm going to say it again because it bears repeating. It pointed to God's gracious and future provision for man. Um, no animal sacrifice do but it pointed to one who would sacrifice that future gracious provision was in Jesus Christ the virgin born prophecy fulfilling savior Jesus didn't say it here but he said it elsewhere and we need to I need to read it to you parallel account Mark chapter 2 verse 27 
Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Hmm. Now that is an authoritative declaration. God never intended ceremony, ritual, and tradition to stand in the way of mercy, kindness, and goodness toward others. The Sabbath wasn't meant to be a burden to people. It was meant to be a blessing to people. It was to be a benefit to man. On the Sabbath, man could rest. He had six days he labored at his work and animals as well. And God said, stop, time out. On the seventh day, you rest and you contemplate me. You worship me and honor me. You need that reflection. You need that rest. If somebody has a need, meet it. Verse 8 is the coup de gras kill shot. Notice, for the Son of Man is a Lord of the Sabbath. Whoa. You better not say that. So we're going to take you somewhere and get you some medication. Jesus claimed to be the sovereign ruler over the Sabbath. That is tantamount to claiming to be God. God is the creator. He is the establisher of the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The one who designed it, and determines its parameters. Only God can do that. Can legitimately say that. The Son of Man. He is saying, I am Messiah. The heavenly Messiah. Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. And I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Next week, Jesus is going to confront them and show them need more forcefully. I'm in charge. I'm the living God. By the way, <laughs> this is the first day of the week, not the seventh. We, we don't worship on the Sabbath. We worship on the first day of the week because Jesus Christ was raised on the first day of the week why we do it. Nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to keep the Sabbath. The other nine commandments, you find them in various places in the New Testament, we're to obey them. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord. And you're a Christian, he's your Lord. And he has the right, as I said a moment ago, determine how you live and how you think because he is the Lord Jesus Christ and if you know him you'd be happy and glad to be able to do his will if you're not a Christian you in effect have said I am my own Lord 
I uh, determine what I do and what I think, where I go and how I do or whatever I do. But you see that you want a new Lord. You need the Lord Jesus Christ who will save you from your sin. Because anybody without Christ is on a self-destructive road. They're headed to eternal perdition. They're headed to hell. But you can get off that road. It's called the road of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give your life to him. He will save you and give you joy unspeakable. He'll give you everything you ever wanted and needed, even that which you didn't even know you needed in terms of spiritual reality. Let us bow together and pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for another disclosure of the marvelous and beautiful and powerful and perfect person of our Savior, our Lord, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for him. May we love him more, serve him more faithfully. May our thoughts entertain high and holy thoughts drawn from your word about him. May we draw from his wisdom be expressed in our life and our walk, our relationships with people because he is the governor of our life. Oh, we bless him and bless you, our Father, for sending your only begotten son, one of a kind son, to save sinners for our sin, to purchase ransom, purchase salvation, purchase forgiveness, purchase all that we need so that we might be your children by faith. Help those who are without him to come to him. And we thank you for this time together for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.